Game on! You'll be earning some serious XPs with today's episode. Hi lab mates, welcome to the Social Learning Lab, a pod class about social learning at work. Today, we're going to talk to a true learning catalyst about how to amplify cohort-based learning with games. Lab mates, meet Mo Ash, one of the raddest people on the L&D scene. Mo is a learning architect and entrepreneur who blends gamification and performance management to create impactful learning experiences. His interdisciplinary background of study includes human resources management, international development, instructional design, community psychology, and if that wasn't enough already, Mo is currently seeking to acquire another degree in business psychology, and all of this is just to say that Mo really knows his stuff, both practically and academically, and what it takes to engage people meaningfully in growth. Uh, Mo is also a brand wizard. You may recognize him as the leader of The Catalyst, a learning design consultancy founded on the sole purpose of creating impeccable learning experiences. Uh, He hosts a fantastic podcast and has led many wonderful live stream events for the international learning and development community. Uh, He's also a Genially brand ambassador. He is a speaker. And the last thing I want to mention is that Mo is the leader of an amazing cohort um, that is game based, which is definitely the theme of today's talk, yep. and it's called Trainer of Trainers. Uh, he's responsible for many learning and development professionals from Egypt and abroad who have gone through his program and developed their talent development talents. So we're super psyched to have Mo. My team campaigned for Mo's, not that it was very difficult to campaign for, but campaigned for his presence today. So, Mo, welcome and thank you for being here. <laughs> thank you, Nicole. Um, wow. <laughs> I'm like, that, that's one hell of an intro. So thank you so much for that. Humble by Well, you know, you're an impressive individual. It was easy. Well, you're already impressive <laughs> one, trust me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know we... <laughs> I, thank you. Um, I think it takes all types to make this industry go around. And I love, you know, personally, like I said, my, my team was all about having Mo on the, the podcast. We even pushed, we were thinking about having you next season. We're like, no, we need Mo right now. Um, but... You know, you bring such an interesting, I think, blend of experiences and understanding and study. And so you've got this vantage point that not everybody in our industry really has or understands. And, you know, we we know you're out there trying to help people and bringing all this information to our community. And we really appreciate that. And so I think what I'd love to know from you, Mo, just to start, because you say this about your company's mission and purpose, but like what makes impeccable learning what is impeccable learning oh uh, an impeccable learning honestly speaking with the easy stuff you go. <laughs> it's, it's it's not really i mean that's the hardest question to to be completely honest you can look at it from different angles <laughs> from one point you'll be like okay meeting the learning objectives is impeccable learning and those learning objectives will be measurable they will be quantifiable that's impeccable learning on the other side you got a lot of people meeting the learning objectives, but the training or the program or the learning asset was pretty much mundane or awful. And that really takes us to the learning experiences, uh, like, uh, needs hierarchy, (laughs) like, uh, like Maslow's needs hierarchy. You you get the same one. I like that idea. You get from, from one point, like at the bottom of it, that the training has to be practical, uh, useful, and task-based. That it, it's easy to offboard, and and people can utilize it right off when when they go back to their desks, to their day-to-day activities, to to their scope of what they're doing. And on the other side, the top of the pyramid, the epitome, the pinnacle, is that it would be meaningful, purposeful. And enjoyable, like enjoyable. It could be enjoyable, but might not be practical. But we want it to be enjoyable. We want it to be purposeful, meeting the purpose that people are aspiring towards. And also we want it to be meaningful, that it it relates to them. It, 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 it anchors something that they can capitalize on in what they do. So if we look at that pyramid, there is a chasm in the middle. Some people can do this and you get your coaching, you get your 
people that work in, in like organization development, they're trying to make it enjoyable and purposeful and meaningful by talking about things that can let people feel at ease and happy. But on the bottom of the pyramid, it's not very practical. It leaves a sense of nice, a sense of uh, like significance, but not practical significance. It's not significance that is tool-based or backed up. So to me, if we can look at the entire pyramid, that makes things impeccable. And the name of the game here is engagement. Honestly. Because according to Dr. David Perkins from uh, Harvard School of Continuous Education, there are six different things that can make an effective learning experience. I'm not going to go through the six, but I'm going to go through number one and number six. So number one is that learners must be deeply engaged with the subject matter. So deeply engaged with the subject matter means that people are intrinsically motivated to continue on with this. Intrinsic motivation would need three main things. I'm autonomous on taking decisions within the learning experience on what to do, what not to do. I can make deliberate decisions. Two, I can see that there's a progression system. Like how in behavioral psychology, uh, cascading information theory, things are put up in snips. I'm going up in it. I'm progressing and I'm progressing for a reason. There's rapid feedback. There's, assess there's an assessment of some sort. I know what's happening. And at the end, relatedness and purpose. It's relatable to me. It's purposeful to me. Now, this is how we can get someone engaged intrinsically, not extrinsically, like get yourself some points or like a badge or whatever. And then number six in that is learner's sense of curiosity must be increased. If I can foresee what's happening ahead I know I'm going to go and learn with Nicole about social learning. But if I went through the content, like if I went through the outline and yeah, I know this and I know that, well, I don't really know much about that, but I mean, go figure. It might be one of those. If I can see how things are going to be laid out in front of me, or if I get into an experience that is pretty much similar to a bad experience that I went through before, or based on something that was awful that I went through before, I'll be tuned out. So I'm just going to take those two aspects from effective experiences. Engagement and our sense of curiosity must be very much increased. We have to build up with how people can feel that, you know what, I want to go to the next one and the next level. I don't know what's going to happen in the next session or in the next form of activation that would happen in class or in an e-learning or in a virtual classroom and so on. Well, having said that, first, I, I love both of those things because it's it's so interesting when you move engagement from like, first of all, there's the intrinsic motivation, but then talking about curiosity, to me, that taps into like the idea of continuous improvement that pretty much every organization says they want these days and isn't necessarily getting at. And so if your learning is creating that, well, not only are you creating this better experience, but you're tying into those business needs. And so I think that's a really interesting, I actually haven't read that article, so I'm going to go find it. Um, uh, the, the, the three, but it makes sense uh, to me also points. now why you love games so much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the three main tenets of intrinsic yeah, yeah. motivation. Yeah, yeah, and the six. I haven't heard the six. It's built on Ryan and Deshi. And... Um, the one with the, the uh, Harvard Business School of uh, Continuous, uh, sorry, Harvard School of Continuous Education is, uh, I've read it in the book, um, uh, The Lenses of Games. And I've also read it in an article that was posted by Microsoft about effective learning. So these oh. are my resources uh, on how this, uh, how this came to me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I mean, so that gives me just this great segue because I really want to talk about this next, but games, you love games for learning and hearing you talk about what makes impeccable learning. It's very obvious to me, or at least it seems obvious to me why you've made that 
connection or why you love games so much. But like, I really have not played that many games for at least corporate learning and development. Mm. And so, yeah, like, I think there's so much to unpack there. So I would just love to know first, like, why do you love games for learning so much? Because I know you do. Well, um, I do love games in general. And um, disclaimer, I'm not a gamer. Just a disclaimer. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not a gamer. Like, I'm, I do own an Xbox. And I'm one of those that would open up the Game Pass. And I'm like, oh, that's a nice game. I'm going to add it to the list. That's a nice game. I'm going to add it to the list. And I, I'm hoarding. I'm hoarding games. And then when I purchase the game like- or I play it, <laughs> I get the games and I do not enjoy the games anymore, Nicole. I'm going into the game and like, that's an interesting narrative. Okay, that's a good mechanic that I can look into. And when I get board games, I lost the joy of playing a game like a normal human being. I even buy games and I deconstruct them and I do not play them. I just, you know what? Okay, this yeah, works. I understand that. Now I know. We played it. Let's shelf it. Let's get another one. So I'm not a gamer, but the way I got into games is that when I was when I was a kid, I used to play war games that would take like six hours at least, like games like Risk, games like Catan, um, yeah. um, games like uh, Diplomacy, Ticket to Ride, all of those. So I was fortunate enough to have that kind of culture in my family. And why I'm saying that? Because where I am in the world, they don't really know much about board games, but recently. And in order for me to get a game, Nicole, I I can't just go to a store. I actually have a dealer, like I'm getting drugs. His name is Jimmy. So I would go and be like, (laughs) hey, Mo. I got some of those boxes, man. I got, I got some of those games. I got some of those new stuff, man. And yeah, I, I do have a dealer that gets me games from like Dubai or the US or from Europe. And this is how we get games here. We still do not have that culture. So I shifted from L&D consultancy. And all of a sudden, I found myself in a company that does homegrown business board games. And I went there to conduct but then i found you know what i'm 60 percent, 70 percent more of a designer than a trainer let me let me take my time with this and what i found is that games were an amazing vehicle for complex knowledge and complex complex means of application to be catered so easily to people. Like, the first time I would conduct a game, I was conducting a game that would teach people long-term planning, short-term planning, dealing with contingencies, dealing with change, and work breakdown structure and project management in just two days. And they would come out of it knowing how to do all of that, not knowing it, knowing how to do. So if I... Got to them That's like amazing. later, a month later at work. And this is something that I have managed to do. They were applying that. They still remember what happened during a two days experience. So I was like, okay, this is a ship that I need to learn how to sail. I, I, I need to get myself there. And um, I became the R&D manager. I started to create games there. And then I became a business partner of the company that I was hired by. And then I left them and I opened up my own stuff. I I had to do my own thing. And the first program that I've ever done gamified was the TOT. And we'll get to that. Uh, The training of trainers or the train the trainer. But to me, gamification makes it so easy because gamification in Arabic, not in English, the, the translation of it is motivational strategies of games. We don't, we don't have that translation in English. That's how it's translated in Arabic. 
I it's love not, that. Yeah, so it's much not better. like playful learning or experiential. No, 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 no. Motivational strategies of games. So this is what it does. We're using whatever that games can offer to us to intrinsically motivate people, to nudge people, to do specific behaviors. That's why I love to say that mechanics of a game provoke learners to act in a certain way. In our job as game designers, we're creating those nudges. We're creating those provoking elements that can drive people to do certain things within a border that the designer created. This is this is awesome. Like this is this is omni awesome that you have that kind of power to put people within that kind of experience. It's so cool. I mean. So we will talk about tra trainer trainers, but like the way you get excited about it. And I can think of, like I said, very few games that I have played in learning and development, but when I have played them and they worked, right? Cause there's, there's bad games there. but when yeah. they work, you don't forget them. Like I go back to, um, we played the data literacy game at ATD ice. And you just were this past say year, so 2023 with Schultz. Yeah, yeah, I, I prop him up all the time, so. <laughs> but it, it was really a great experience, and, like, I remember what we learned, and I remember bombing some of the questions, or, like, overthinking it because I was now told it was a game, but also I could just as easily do that in real life. And so, yes, to all you're saying, because I can say from personal experience as a learner, it when it works, it really, it really does. works. Um, so, like... I'm going to narrow us down because there are a lot of different types of games, right? There's stuff that is fully, um, I don't want to say automated, but like single player games, right? Mm -hmm. But because we're, this is a social learning podcast, I'm yeah. going to move us to the social stuff. And I know you use them in cohorts and things like that. So when we think about games and social learning, how are you putting them together? How are you using them to create these social learning experiences? Okay, well, you need to understand that in games, there's a complete domain that is the the concurrence, the 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 um the means of relatedness that people would have amongst one another. So obviously, you could be building on behavioral science from like the bandwagon effect, the similarity attraction, the um the sunk cost fallacy. I mean. Herd mentality helps so much in games. Like, well, if they're all doing it, then I better, better be part of them. So we do that. And there are certain mechanics that are so dependent on the fact of social learning. Now, to, to start off, we all know that social learning or like social cohorts based on Albert Bandura and Vygotsky to the end of all that really works into, okay, that we have the behavioral aspect and we have the cognitive aspect. The behavioral aspect that I want people to act in a certain way or do a certain thing, but I don't know how that behavioral asserted behavior, that asserted behavior, how would it come to light? And this is when cognitivism comes to play, that I need to be offering people enough cognition to push that impulse, to push that stimuli for it to happen. And this is called the mediation process. So the mediation process proposed by Albert Bandura is that the best thing that can offer that stimuli is an environment where people can start to be affected by one another. That cognition would prevail across one another so that behavior becomes not only asserted but actually consistent and with specific standard because you have more than one person doing it at a time okay and obviously for us to do this you have to guide their attention you need to work on repetitive actions that they could do you need to do similarity and you need to intrigue their motivation to do something together now, one of the first mechanics that you can consider in a social cohort is social pressure. And we like to, to put the analogy of starlings. Starlings, just birds 
moving around in unity. So this is what people do. And as designers, how will you put the social pressure factor where people can do something together? That could be by putting them into teams and guilds, by letting them deal with specific consequences together, by putting a specific commitment that all team uh, team members need to pitch in. Like what happens in many games, specifically I'm talking about corporate games, is that you get three or five people that are playing a specific game. And there aren't assigned roles. So when there aren't assigned roles, you get people that would... I'm sorry, I'm going to be saying that word. They're obnoxious enough to be doing all roles. But when you're stating roles and you're putting interdependency, you're creating a community of people working together. Each and every person knows what they should do. So you got that point. Also, let me go to my through notes here. You have collect and trade. See, collect and trade is a mechanic. But here I'm not talking about teams and guilds. I'm talking about Nicole is in a team with Vanessa and Alexandria. And I'm in a team with Robin and Betty. Okay? I'm obviously using names that everyone knows. I've never heard of these people before. Who could they possibly be? We don't know them. We love you guys. Okay, so I'm with, (laughs) with those people. And we're doing a form of collection. We're collecting tokens, loot, whatever. But there is a mechanic that would push me to, Nicole, I need you to give me this for my team and we need to negotiate what is happening. Or you need to sacrifice something. Or we're both at a at a point in the game where one of us loses and the other gains with conditions. This is the collect and trade. So you're not trying to only depend on your team and isolate them, but you want also the entire hemisphere, (laughs) the entire environment to work with one another. And this can happen through cooperation or collaboration. Sorry, cooperation or competition. You got both of them happening together. So you could be competing on collaborating or collaborating on competing. These are the cards. Yeah. That's so cool. So just if you're listening and you're not watching, Mo has actual cards, which yeah. bonus points for doing as he says and not just as he does. <laughs> so these are like some of the minor mechanics that we can mention that would beg people to work together. Last but not least, you need to foster an environment of win some, lose some. Otherwise, what happens in many games that if a specific team becomes on a complete winning streak and no one else is winning, trust me, that's not because they're so good. That because, that's because your design is lousy. And if it happens, you need... <laughs> I actually yeah. think of... Oh, I was just saying, I actually think of my husband. So my husband joined a men's hockey league. And um, the first two years he played, they did not win a single game. And there was one team that won like every, and it, it destroyed the fault. Like he didn't want to go play hockey. Yeah. He did. He stuck it out. They won now, but you know, it, it, it like, gets destroyed bitter. The, the game. No, it wasn't, it wasn't fun. People become really bitter about it. So there has to be in the design a point where, there is a possibility for you to do something that is not dependent only on chance, but skill. So you have this axis, chance and skill. You need to find an equilibrium. So if it's dependent completely on skill, you could have your winning team, a premier team that is so good and they're working together. And the other team just feels that they're, failures and they're terrible well thank you so much no learning would happen so you need to be able to balance between both of them to allow chances like an example that i've done before and i'm going to end this part like leaderboards which is something that everyone likes to do in in games let's say that you have well yeah i'm just saying i hate it but yeah 
Um, let's just say that we have a leaderboard that will go on for like two months, not just a week, two months, a, a campaign. If Nicole came in from day one and she started to play, she started to achieve whatever that needs to be achieved and she's scoring high. Let me tell you that most employees and most learners, they need the social kick, the social pressure kick. So she, she or he will, whomever will go in and they will try their luck at the leaderboard. But what they will find is that they will find that Nicole was already on top of the leaderboard with a thousand points and I wouldn't be able to catch up with her. So that would give me two things. Number one, you can't have an absolute leaderboard that would stay on for two months straight. You need to have weekly leaderboards that reset. So every time I still see that there's a possibility for me to do something this week. And by the way, that would be an even better motivator for me to, you know what? I'm going to be beating Nicole this week. And that can make a huge difference and variance in the global leaderboard at the end of the entire thing. So social pressure is not only in the design of the actual gameplay, but even in the design of some of the mechanics. It has to be dealt with very sensitively because people are purpose maximizers. And if they don't find any purpose, and if they can't really reach that purpose, they will be extremely demotivated. And they would resent the game. And it's so easy to be like, hell with it. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to continue on with this game. Like how your husband did. Yes, yes. And leaderboards. I mean, so I really like that idea. That's actually the first time. It's, it's such a simple but interesting solution. Just reset the leaderboard. Because I think of... Uh, rowing, like I had this iFit app or whatever, and you know, you watch. I'm not, I'm not athletic. I rode horses. Like I, I did not do things that <laughs> that's as athletic as I got. But anyway, you you would just watch. You would start somewhere, and you would just by the end, you'd be like sixteen thousand out of like sixteen thousand and one. You know, <laughs> just so bad. It's it's like okay, I don't even, I don't want to look at the leaderboard anymore. Like that's that's doing nothing for me. I'm just gonna look at I'm not gonna my stats on my own row and that. So I, I don't engage with the community. Yeah. It's interesting. But so you've done this. Not You're not, this isn't just theory. Like you do this in practice. And so mm-hmm. I'm going to segue over to that wonderful trainer, trainer's experience because oh, yeah. I just think it's so cool. I'm, I'm, I wish I could come in and do it myself, honestly. Um, maybe someday I can, but tell us about it. Like, how did you think about it? What, what are the, maybe some of the mechanics that you employed? Why, why is it so impactful? Um, okay. Well. Train the trainer had some problems to me. So I've been delivering train the trainer programs since 2014. So it's been nine years delivering these type of programs. And the first time I've done it, we were four trainers delivering. And um, I was I was the main designer at the beginning. And then later on. Every time we're doing any iterations, I found myself, well, I'm the one who's doing the iteration, main iterations with others. And then later on, I became the person that does the iteration moving on till I left them. And um, because it was with a specific provider, with a specific service provider, and I started to do my own thing. Now, my own thing is the catalyst. So how am I going to be? promoting my business and also I need to be promoting what I believe is extremely important for train the trainer especially that I'm going to be designing and delivering all on my own so number one I need another trainer with me why because people and this is learner centered people need to see diversity they need to see a guy and a gal, two guys, anything, any other type. So they wouldn't be fixated on, okay, in order for you to be a trainer, you need to behavioral model what I'm doing. That's number one. And this is extremely important because people start to relate 
to differences and they can see that it's done differently from one person to the other. Um, that's number one. Number two, the thing that I've been always, always, always convinced with that being a trainer is not dependent on how eloquent and how good you are as a public speaker. That is, that is, that's a load of crap. Sorry, I'm going to say this on, on your class, but yeah, that's a load of crap. It is so dependent on how good your design is. And when I scan the market, everyone is just explaining the analysis part in a very minute way or extremely in-depth, like gap analysis and like uh, performance management systems and organizational analysis. Like, okay, okay, okay. It's like, you don't have to burn the house and you don't really need to just pass by the house. Like, make it in the middle here. And then the second part is that the design was explained in a very, I'm not going to say shallow, but in a very overly simplified way. Which produces trainers that really do not know what actions are. That really don't know the importance of having controllable learning objectives. And they don't really know how to train upon them. So it became just literature that you're, that you're writing. Like Bloom's Taxonomy or Robert Maker's just literature being written down. And a lesson plan is more of an agenda. And curation is just how you organize a session. So what we've done and how I was promoting my business is that our trained the trainer would have a huge depth into design. Like in-depth into design. And over the years, we started as a program that would take like around 46 hours maybe. Now it's an 82-hour program. And it's done in a blended uh, format between online and e-learning. At the beginning, we did it blended, but now we're doing different formats so we can cater to what the market needs. Um, now, why am I saying to cater to the market needs? Because train the trainer has a specific quality. It's based on behavior model. So we need people to model the trainer and to model one another. In most train the trainer, people wait till the implementation part in Addy and they start to implement and they start to stand on stage. I want people to start standing and delivering from day one. How would I be able to do that? Let's create simulations and games from day one where they would need to stand up, work, do stuff, and then present it as a case. I'm not going to be telling them that what they're doing is, a, is training, but... I will be looking at them and I will be even correcting their stands, how they're distributing attention. I'll be like, hey, uh, Minna, Sally, you're a trainer. Look at them. Don't look at me. Look at them. Distribute attention. You, you should st stop the pendulum movement. Like, stand straight. We're not looking into the, the, to the delivery part in Addy or like the implementation part, but I'm building from there. And I'm like, okay, so I'm going to be putting different challenges and quests that will push them to do this. That's number one. Number two, I need them to work together. The, the, the program is pretty complex and it's dense and tough. How will I be able to make it easier or let's not say easier, smoother? Well, create communities of practice. Create people, sorry, create deals and contracts between people where they can depend on one another because what happens by the way and it happened more in, in in more than one cohort is that they meet outside of the program as teams and they work together they do the assignments together bob pike once said it that in any training environments 80 percent from the audience 20 percent from the trainer or the instructor so your people Hold the fabric of your experience because we're dealing with knowledgeable individuals that came with their own luggage. So I need to build on them 
in a divergent way, not in a very convergent f uh, fashion or format. So I was like, okay, then that would need for them to be teams and guilds. Good. Now, I need to make sure that there's continuous formative assessments. Then I need to find a way where each and every session, my curation, my design curation is spiral. It builds up and it goes on. And it builds up and it goes on. And it took me some time to look for an app or a tool. And I did. I found an app that anyone, I mean, I'm telling it to everyone. It costs peanuts. And it really depends on the kind of design that you're going to be putting in it. And by the way, Nicole, it's for teachers, not trainers. But I've used it with adults. And they get excited about it. Okay. So the app is called Classcraft. Classcraft. I don't know if you know about it or not. No, no. I'm, I'm literally, I'm taking okay. lots of mental notes and I'm going to go check that so one out too. Classcraft is so easy. It costs $100 a year, which is peanuts if this is your business or if this, this is something that you're doing. Exactly. See, $100 a year. And you know how much the, the softwares and the stuff that we use cost. So, um... Um, oh my God. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. one of my biggest business expenses. Mm -hmm. Thousands. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the, the point is, I can go in and the game already works like uh, Warcraft or Starcraft. You already have three factions. You have the mage, you have the healers, and you have the warriors. The warriors always have the shield and the highest uh, level of, of hearts that they can always defend the team. And you have the mage that has the highest action points where they can use their magical abilities and their powers. And they can even disperse it across the rest of the team. And then you have the healer who can help the mage, can help the warrior if, if their um, health or their hearts got depleted. So at the beginning, during the orientation session, I tell them whether there were three or there were four or there were five in a team, choose your character and choose wisely. And who will be doing what? Interesting. And they will be accordingly from day one, getting to know, getting to know one another. Who wants to be this? Who wants to be that? What is the game? And in the game, it helps me to have positive behaviors that I can merit, and negative behaviors that I can like punish for. And I don't really use negative behaviors that much because they're adults. But if someone like got late to class by like an hour or something, I'm going to deplete hearts. And the game has a lovely option in it. One of the tools is um, a, a formative review. And I have a library of, of quizzes that I've done that I disperse across the, the program to use. So it could be my own form of learning analytics. And the beauty of it is that it picks a student randomly or it picks a learner randomly and it asks them a question. Every time what happens is that they help one another and they all get gold and they all get XPs. Now let's take, take it to the gold. The gold. They can customize their character. They can buy pets and the pets gets them more gold. And I have a reward by the end of the, uh, the program where they would, uh, who would be the best gamer that would get... Uh, that would get a gift, a board game of my choice to gift it to the best gamer. But that's not only because they went through the formative parts and the, the assignments. No, 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 no. There's another thing that I've, to, I've done. I'm utilizing adaptive learning. I've created a parallel 17 quests. Each and every quest would not take no more than 5 to 15 minutes about things that they can learn extra about training and development. If they went through it at their own time, they would get extra XP and extra gold. I am literally pushing them to go beyond, and I'm trying to chisel their sense of research in the field, to look beyond what's happening in just the TOT program, what's happening abroad. What's happening within? What's happening that is connected to coaching or performance management or behavioral science? This is how the program is. So they are in factions. They help one another. 
and you go all the way till we do something called the mock simulation. Each and every team gets to present their own argument individually, but as a team. And then at the end, we have our own graduation. This was the making in 2018. And now it's 2023. We have been going into 12 rounds of the program. And we have graduated over, over 140 people so far with that model. Or I'm sorry, with that framework of practice. Yeah, that's amazing. I, there's just so much you said in that short amount of time that is so valuable and so thoughtful about how you create these moments. And so, I mean, I'm going to try to unwrap a few, but like the, so you talk about, um, you know, the mages, the healers, uh, the warriors all having their different parts to play. And so we have this more academic concept of like jigsaw learning, but I noticed that neither of those you know, putting people into teams or that. They don't really, again, get used all that much in learning and development. And like, I love the idea of side quests and quests when we talk about learning journeys. But again, I don't, I don't know where the disconnect is, but I would love to see that embedded so much more. And you're saying, not only have you run all these people through this program, but like outcomes, you're doing analytics. Like what are, what are you seeing um, from a learning and maybe impact perspective? Well, what we're seeing is that Number one, I never, ever, ever, and I stopped doing that, put expectations to people. I stopped setting expectations. Sometimes you get someone in and you know what? That dude has huge potential. I can see him skyrocketing. And the other person, you know what? Nah, he's going to struggle or she's going to struggle. And at the end, usually that's not really the case. The analytics of how they're going from one point into the program asynchronously and synchronously gives you miles of data about people's perseverance in learning and how sometimes what we consider from a performance management perspective, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm actually an, 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 a certified assessment center analyst. A and B element assessment. I used to do psychometrics. And you will get people into psychometrics and you can manage and understand more about their potential. And I used to go to companies and I do their nine box performance matrix, potential and performance, and see where people would be. Bullshit. Bullshit. You need, literally, yes, you need to see frequency. And ongoing feedback. And one of the things that people love, love, Nicole. And it always like like smacks them in the head. Mo, you actually read the assignment? I'm like, yeah. Because each and every person in class gets an individualized feedback about what they've done. And details about how they can develop. It works tremendously with them. They thought they would be like getting a feedback that is, good job, continue on, keep it up. No, I send them. C plus. Yes, exactly, exactly. I'm not giving you merits. I am assessing what you've done. Starting from the second assignment when they actually see that there's feedback and there's attention synchronously or asynchronously, you would find the analytics and the trends are different. And... Some people that you would think that they have potential, but they're not really putting in the work, depending on, well, my God-gifted talents, they don't really get all the way to the end, unless their team helped them out. Unless. Social pressure again. So, yeah. Interesting. Teams can help you out to grow, and other times, it's on you, boo-boo. Well, we tried. We couldn't. So I really love this whole concept because, well, first of all, when I used to teach from data to design, that was, and it still is one of the biggest sellers. They're like, no, don't run it again if you're not going to do personalized feedback. But it's amazing to me how, well, we know it's impactful, but again, we're not doing it that much. It, it, it But it shows you care, and that that's a lot of it. But the other thing I want to hit 
push that you've really said, and I'm going to probably make this like our last big point, is just that. I'm with you. A lot of times in L&D, we value high performers. Yeah, we value high performers. We say, this person's a high performer, therefore I'm going to give them more training, more opportunities. But we don't value the person who we also hired because we thought they were talented and somehow just isn't branded as the high performer. Maybe, I don't know, it it could be for genuine reasons or, you know. But what you're saying is that assumption is often wrong Mm -hmm. and by only giving them learning opportunities when they're labeled high performer, we've essentially made it so the high performer is only going to stay the yeah. high performer where these other people don't get uh, opportunities to excel on their terms when maybe they just need a little bit of scaffolding to get to that level so they could then excel like that high performer is excelling. And I think that's such an important point to make. It's, it's, it's the point that I, since I've, I was a training manager before and uh, I've run training teams, um, Meriting and, and, and praising the high performer or and, and, and keeping the low performer, both, both is a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're just grooming them to fail or to win. Okay. Now, the point of the matter is, what did you do to, number one, understand why they're acting this way and is the high performer, high performer based on KPIs and based on actual performance, or is it because they can do certain things easily? Let me stop here for a moment. If they're doing certain things easily and they're excelling in what they're doing, let me let me warn you, they're going to leave you pretty soon. Unless you give them fix it or stretch it tasks. Fix it or stretch it tasks challenges what they can do and what they can offer and it retains them and it keeps them on the job to learn because there's still something to nibble on something to shoe and it could be one of their motivational factors and then let's go to the failing one is that person failing because they are not not in in like in the right mind is it something that they need counseling for or they can't cognitively understand? They weren't scaffolded, as you've mentioned. They're not onboarded. Are they facing pressure of specific bottlenecks in, 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 in what they're doing? Accordingly, we have here an action plan that can be done and here a developmental plan. And in both cases, I need to understand two things about people in their attitude. A, what's their self-image? And that can be done through questionnaire or a one-to-one. How do they really perceive themselves? I'm not going to have an accurate answer to it, but at least a glimpse. And the second one, what's their motive? Some people are motivated by money. Some people are motivated by title. Sometimes we create titles to keep people. Some people are motivated by tasks and responsibilities. Some are motivated by recognition. Some are People are motivated by their team or like being part of a like a a, um, a, a guilt or like a, a cult that they feel they're close to, okay? But um, I need to understand this before I can call a judgment, a final judgment on whether, one, they need training, <laughs> two, they need what kind of performance? Or three, do I need to terminate or transfer? That's that's always been a problem. Yes. So I'm going to... Yes to all of that. Like, I think everyone should just listen to this episode on repeat because there's so much that is pertinent, valuable, that kind of gets skipped in the, the shuffle of we create e-learning or you know, maybe ignoring the social factors, whether you're designing social learning or just thinking about the fact that humans are social beings and it influences how we do things. Um, So I'm going to say just, just constantly like put, put most episode on repeat, listen to it once a week, like (laughs) put these things into play. I think it's really important that if you're creating social learning, we are doing that root cause analysis. Let people, let people know one another, Paul. Because people think that, you know what, I'm yes. going to be adding a forum and a discussion board and I'm going to do this and this and no one visits it. Well, if you're not going to be 
putting any any way for people to have more horizontal communication between them and one another and you're pushing that to happen it's like you're in a bar okay you need your your psychic you need your wingman you need someone that can push it have you met nicole have you met mo you need that you need that part to just get the wheels running yeah to, yeah. to, to, to make it happen we call it um, member matchmaking. Like when you're in a community practice, you have that moderator trying to matchmake people based on interests and things. But I'm going to leave us off on this note, um, which is just that what you're saying is that good social learning and games for learning, they take thoughtful design, but they also take people who care behind the experience in order to make them work. Amen. Um, so Mo, this has been amazing and I've kept you way too long, but I just, I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to listen to this episode on repeat. I love everything we've talked about today. If people want to know more about you and you know, your work, where can they find you? Um, well, I'm more than happy for you to pass by my LinkedIn, I suppose. Um, uh, and also my website is called the catalyst experience.com. So yeah, that's the website of the company and pass by my LinkedIn drop a message and uh, let's have a conversation. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, for giving us all your insights, your, you know, it's really been an amazing episode. And I know that um, if you're out there listening and you want to talk more about this stuff, because there's a lot to talk about, the Social Learning Lab community on Facebook is the place to do it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you a lot, Mo. We'll see you soon. I don't know about you, but I'm going to have to listen to this episode multiple times to squeeze every great tip and insight out of it. Here are a few big ones to remember. First, leverage behavioral science to make social learning more impactful. Recognizing the importance of relatedness in learning environments is a big help. Concepts like the bandwagon effect, similarity attraction, and the sunk cost fallacy play a significant role in why people choose to participate. Use Albert Bandura's mediation process to create environments where people influence each other positively. This can lead to consistent behavior and adherence to standards within the group. And of course, you want to reinforce the standards that make sense for your community. Apply social pressure effectively by using it as a learning mechanic, but balance it carefully to avoid the negative effects that can come from peer pressure. And of course, avoid gamification for gamification's sake. Ensure that you're using gamification in meaningful ways, not just dropping in game elements to say you created interactivity. Again, there was a whole lot in that episode, and so I hope you'll listen back and consider what makes sense for you to apply in your context. Now on to the experiment. It wouldn't be a game episode without a game to play. So in the experiment brief, you'll find a fun multiplayer game. You'll witness games for learning in action and learn more about social learning through this experiment. You can snag your copy of the experiment brief in the show notes or the Social Learning Lab community on Facebook. And of course, we encourage you to share the results of your experiment in the community as well. It's an opportunity for you to get feedback and insights from peers and get social about social learning. Well, thanks for joining us. And please, if you enjoyed the episode, give us a review, like, subscribe, or share the episode so we can continue to build a supportive group of social learning enthusiasts. Until next time, keep making learning that matter.